You're listening to The Conservative Conscience. In Washington, politicians are full of half-truths and hot air. The Conservative Conscience is here to help you cut through the rhetoric and noise and explore the politically right way to think about the issues. You'll dive into one of the most insightful conservative minds in America. Conservative Review Senior Editor Daniel Horowitz. Using pure common sense and ignoring the groupthink, Daniel breaks down the major issues in Washington. You are now entering the Conservative Conscience. And welcome back to the Conservative Conscience here at Conservative Review's Northern Command, powered by Westwood One Podcast Network. And indeed, this is your one respite from the false dichotomies, the false information, and really the false focus of politics today. You know, I said beginning this week that I didn't want any trouble. It's like, you know, like, I don't want to pick any fights here. I didn't want to get into any firefights. I just wanted an easy week. I I want a break. I want to be with the family, really starting noon tomorrow. So this might be our last episode this week. But, of course, that doesn't happen in this uh, day and age. Um, As expected, we now have um, a government shutdown. Our government shut down last night. See, I'm not referring to the suspension of or lapse of appropriations for 18% of our discretionary agencies. I am referring to the real government shutdown, that our federal government doesn't guard our border from external threats, and indeed, according to a district judge now, cannot do it. We are told that a district judge can grant standing to the ACLU on behalf of foreign nationals and and basically render a, an, an, an edict, a royal edict, against our sovereignty, and there's not a darn thing we can do about it. Folks, I don't know what to tell you anymore. I, I just don't know what to say. If, if this is where we are, there's no statute you could write. Indeed, the statutes actually explicitly bar the courts from having judicial review over asylum. Uh, but that doesn't matter anyway because it's not about asylum. This is an invasion. It's a prima facie invasion. Um, I just spent an hour last night with two border sheriffs in Yuma and Tucson Great folks. I really want to have them on the show, hopefully next week, uh, just telling me about what they're dealing with. And um, it ain't asylum. That's like reading a statute of Amelia Bedelia. But again, either way, as you well know, 212F overrides that. Inherent executive authority overrides that. But we have a guest today. Before we get to him, I just want to say one thing on this issue um, in case we don't have time to get to it later. And that is this this clown of a judge, Judge Tigar. Um, Obama-appointed judge for the Northern District of California. In 1996, from this very panel in the Northern District of California, it was one of the few cases where they actually took 212F to the courts, where President Clinton asserted it because um, he was preventing Haitians from landing on our shores, which is exactly what Trump is trying to do. And he's actually not even doing it. He's just, you know, between the points of entry, points of entry is allowing them to do it, which I don't agree with. But even that was too much for this court. Anyway... Um, this has been exercised 40 times over the last half a century. It was rarely adjudicated because everyone understood the 130 years of case law that a president could exclude um, anyone absolutely any time, um, and that's inherent in Article Two powers. But anyway, the court said the following. The exclusion of aliens is a fundamental act of sovereignty. The right to do so stems not alone from legislative power, but is inherent in the executive power to control the foreign affairs of the nation. When Congress prescribes a procedure concerning the admissibility of aliens, it is not dealing alone with a legislative power. It is implementing an inherent executive power. It is implementing an inherent executive power that was 
930 F sub, 1360-1365. Northern District Cal, 1996, the very court that was there. But I am sure DOJ did not assert that because, well, whatever. Anyway, so we got that. We got, um, you know, one of the things I was speaking to the sheriff about last night was he, he literally couldn't believe. He said, Daniel, are these guys missing screws? That after what I'm dealing with at the border, not only are they supplying me with the fixing of the policies to stop this invasion, but they are actually letting drug traffickers out of federal prison. He, could, he said, Daniel, is there something missing in their brain? Um, I, I don't know. I mean, that's what it appears. And so anyway, between these two issues, I'm just going to explode. So before I explode, I have a very special guest waiting on the line. Congressman-elect Chip Roy, um, very hard-fought race uh, from Texas 21, San Antonio to Austin area. This was the seat vacated by Congressman Lamar Smith. Um, but as you well know, Democrats contested everything, and they uh, put someone up who outspent him significantly. Uh, luckily, he was able to win. And now we have one of us, quite literally, headed to Washington. With no further ado, it is an honor to welcome back, once again, Chip Roy, Congressman-elect. I love the sound of it, Chip. Good morning, Daniel. How are you? It's great to talk to you. I uh, uh, appreciate that and certainly love being on your show. And uh, our mutual friend, Steve Dace, and I were talking yesterday, and, and I was joining him, and he scolded me for running for Congress, said, I told you not to do this, and, and yet you did it anyway. And I, I've said, you know, you, we all are called to finish this race and fight the fight through the end. And look, I'm, I'm, I'm frustrated like you are, as a lot of uh, our, <clears throat> the listeners no doubt are, but we've got still, I believe, an opportunity with some people who get it to really try to fight and try to uh, – uh, win this fight and get it done the right way. And, and, uh, you know, I look, I feel energized. I mean, <clears throat> we're going to, we're going to go up there and we're going to go make the case. We're going to do what we said we, we, we were going to do and, uh, we'll see where the cards fall, but, uh, we're not going to sit back and just let our nation get thrown overboard without a fight. You know, that, that's the point I want to push off of sit back. What, what is disturbing me is I am seeing Orwellian illegitimate baseline views Baseline views on laws, baseline views on the philosophical moorings of a nation state, baseline views of, of policy and politics that even our side seems to have accepted and, and accepted very strongly and often universally when it's really the opposite. There's not a shred of legitimacy to their legal or policy uh, rationale. Um, in no particular order, we've discussed, and I know a lot of these issues are your top issues on this show in recent weeks – Judicial supremacy, our backwards foreign policy, our backwards sovereignty and border policies, our backwards immigration priorities, our backwards understanding of health care, our backwards understanding of debt, our backwards understanding of law and order and criminal justice and drug trafficking, our backwards understanding of the cause and the nature of the opioid crisis and how it's hurting pain patients, what government is doing in order to protect drug traffickers, sanctuary cities, and um, – the Central American, uh, you know, influx. Again, I threw out a lot of issues there, but my, why am I saying that? I'm seeing Chip. There is no leadership on a single issue. The the, the non swampy elitist point of view is not getting out on this. When I believe we are the ones that have the legitimate heritage of the Constitution on these issues. What do you think you can do as one man? Going up there as you know, you were a private citizen fighting with Stephen, Daniel, and other people, and now you're congressman elect. What do you think you could do to take the ball forward? 
Well, <clears throat> I was joking with somebody the other day. It's like you realize that I'm one four hundred and thirty fifth of one half of one third of the uh, uh, the seat of the federal government in terms <laughs> of power. Uh, although you might point out that uh, I'm even less than that, given the extent to which we've thrown all the power towards the judiciary. <laughs> uh, look, we have all of the <clears throat> opportunity in the world to be successful, provided that the American people stand up as a group. We always win when the American people stand up. Uh, it doesn't have to be a majority. It has to be, as Sam Adams said, a tireless minority being willing to set brush fires of freedom. We stopped previous rounds of amnesty. We stopped previous rounds of gun control. We stopped previous bouts of profligate spending. Always when somebody or some small group of people on the inside in Washington work together with an active group of people outside of Washington to stop things or to make things happen, like cut cap and balance in 2011. So the answer to your question is simply this. I need to find the small uh, band of brothers and or sisters in Washington who are willing to challenge the status quo at the other end of Pennsylvania Avenue and try to make the case for freedom. And that's it. It's simply put, this is not a bipartisan fight, or, or I should say, this is not a partisan fight. No. This, is a, this is a fight between those of us who believe in, who cherish, who want to preserve freedom and all that goes with it. Freedom isn't always pretty. Freedom isn't always clean. Freedom doesn't always mean you get everything you want. But for those of us who cherish freedom and all that it brings, it is our duty to stand up and fight for freedom in the face of Democrats and Republicans who do not care about it, who simply care about power, who simply give uh, false, uh, you know, kind of head nods toward freedom while actually growing the size of government, spending our children's future and uh, limiting our ability to live free the way we think we should. And I think if people who believe in freedom, stand up and talk about it openly and honestly. And the American people who I think still believe and want to cherish freedom, not freedom to go be an idiot, which is the way people define freedom these days, to say any random thing you want to say or do whatever you want to say. That's all. I'm talking about freedom, actually living free from government control and uh, uh, not freedom to express yourself and wear whatever you know crazy thing you want to wear, et cetera. All that's freedom. But I'm talking about actual freedom, free from government telling you what your health care looks like. You know, freedom to be able to set up your business the way you want to. Freedom to send your kid to the school you want to. Freedom to afford health care. Freedom from government debt. And freedom as defined by having a secure, sovereign nation. The, the, the singular primary purpose of government, right, is preserve and protect our liberties, liberties and uh, create a secure environment for us to do so. And we're ignoring that one core singular purpose. So <clears throat> that's the answer. We've got to stand up for freedom, and we've got to mobilize a group of Americans to demand that we adhere to and protect freedom. You know, what you're touching on, I think, is kind of something I wrote. I didn't really flesh out to this audience on the show, but I know a lot of you guys do read the articles as well. I wrote last week a need for the Freedom Caucus to take things to the next level. And I guess the point was, you're saying you don't need we don't need a majority, we need a tireless minority, and I, I think that is that is true. You see that from 
the Revolutionary War onwards. Uh, heck, you see from the left. I mean, <laughs> they have an indefatig- indefatigable uh, minority on every issue, no matter how absurd it is, and they can be pretty successful in almost every county of the country uh, promoting it because often they're the only ones in the field. And, you know, if you take the field and you have a tireless minority, there's a lot you can do. But you, you got to get on the map. And I feel like we don't really – we don't have much of a movement inside Congress, outside Congress on the map. The In my mind, the most prominent – organization that at least we have that has some sort of notoriety is the freedom caucus i you know a lot of people um identify with it a lot of people i meet even those that might be somewhat critical of trump and his personality um but they like the freedom caucus they, they feel it's smart they feel it has an agenda um i feel that it has the raw materials of what we could work with but I think, like you said, there needs to be an inside-outside game, how they work with people from the outside. I've talked about the following point that I think the Freedom Caucus needs to marshal, and I'm curious what you think is an incoming member of Congress. And that's as follows. Um, your staffs are tiny. I mean, they're, they're going to be very small. You are brilliant. You are very focused. Uh, but there's a limit to how much you could, you could even monitor. Um, I try to keep on top of a tremendous amount of issues, but I know there's a lot more than even what I'm seeing. Like, I know there's a lot more with the pain patients and the opioid stuff. I have 10 things written on my list today. I can't get to it. Um, even if you had a few people on a staff, we don't have the resources the swamp has. Is there some way to marshal maybe an informal organizational level of where the Freedom Caucus holds field hearings with Ordinary citizens like you're talking about. There's a lot of people that I know you met on the campaign trail. They're experts on health care. They could be experts on military affairs. They could be experts on the border, particularly in Texas. There's a lot of people like that. I don't mean in a legal term of art way to deputize them in any legally binding way, but to have some sort of way of getting the citizenry involved in writing reports, exposing how policies are harmful, crafting policy solutions to make it easier for you guys on the inside to take that, you know, take the fight to to the powers that it needs to be taken to. So I think <clears throat> you're raising a point that's really important, and for your listeners out there, uh, you know, this is this is how we win, right? I mean, we have got to do things like this to reach out and engage with the populace and to get everybody singing off the same sheet of music. We've got to focus like a laser, in my opinion, on three, four, five key areas, depending on how you define. We've got to focus on spending. We have to. It is the best way, in my opinion, to kind of break down the partisan barriers and put everybody on notice that a trillion-dollar deficit is not going to be tolerated. And that's something that I think we can win on if you hit it hard. You got a handful of eggheads out there saying debt spending is great. It's all fine. You're an issuer currency, blah, blah. And ignores common sense about what this means in terms of the size of government and our economic frailty going forward. So I think you, you focus on spending and balancing the budget. But you got to focus on health care. You've got to focus on our borders and our sovereignty and, and talk about all that the right way. And then I think you also need to focus, I've got to be honest, about the extent to which Republicans have allowed <clears throat> uh, corporations to continue to be enriched by government and the crony uh, it's not even crony capitalism, right? I mean, uh, it, you know, the crony venture socialism, I think, is a term you've used before. And, sure. you know, it, it, we've got to focus in on that. It's very, it's populist. So, in other words, I, I think that would be popular, but that's not even why to do it. It's, it's, it's the right thing to focus on. 
And then finally, I think another area to focus on is the extent to which our military has been being misused as an excuse for deficit and debt, you know, deficit spending and racking up debt while we put our men and women in harm's way for causes that the American people aren't 100% sure we ought to be doing. So this has been the story of the Republican Party for the better part of my life, right? Cutting taxes, giving subsidies to big corporations, putting our men and women in uniform in harm's way overseas, allowing health care to spiral out of control in terms of costs going up, dancing around the border on open borders, and allowing deficit spending to go up. <laughs> That's been the story of the Republican Party for as long as I can remember, and it's going to stop. Or the Republican Party might as well go into the ash bin of history, which is where it deserves to go right now if we don't change it. Wow. I mean, you're touching on a sore point because if you think back, I, I my political vantage point starts pretty much around 1994. And, you know, that was a very significant year. You had the Gingrich Revolution. We actually had affirmative beliefs. We came in with them. To a certain extent, the House tried on some things. Um, and I think they did actualize in a vacuum, short-term, more success but th than we ever did before. But again, in the long run, it all gets countermanded. So the welfare reform was really one of 77 means-tested programs, and even that wound up being countermanded by the you know Obama Stimulus Act. And you look since then, and the only thing that we've really significantly succeeded on, where I think over the course of – 20, 30 years, not just in a vacuum, but we really succeeded on it was tax cuts. So taxes are lower. And I think we're thankful that you know our tax burden is lower than it is in Europe. But I think what you're hinting at is in some ways it's our, our albatross because you know the whole point of that was to limit government. That's what Reagan talked about all the time. He viewed it as a twofer that you cut taxes so you starve the beast. But what the deficit spending did is it ensured that no, they continue with all the bad policies, and then it's just the opposite. People don't even feel the pain, so it doesn't force them to fight. So basically, they've greased the skids for corporations to have more money, which I'm all for, so then they can go and turn around to be the enforcers for the cultural Marxists on all those issues. And it's like, yeah, so we got – in 30 years, we got what? Tax cuts? Um, we got the war in Iraq, which – Basically, it handed Iraq to Iran. Um, Baghdad is now contemplating an alliance with Qatar, which will include Turkey and Iran and, and Syria. So that, that's where that went towards. We were in Afghanistan for 17 years when the military is admitting there is no solution there, but they're still keeping our, our men there, dying from insider attacks from our friends. And then we bring in 20,000 immigrants a year from Afghanistan. Oh, and then we prosecute our soldiers and Navy SEALs when we don't like what they're doing. There's no baseline of what it is we want other than owning the liberal media. I mean, what, 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 oh, and, and I, Chip, I forgot one more thing. Judges. Oh, but whoops, that's getting worse than ever because the capacity of a conservative judge to do good is nowhere near a capacity of a liberal judge to do bad, illegally grant standing, give any edict, and once we agree to judicial supremacism, um, even if you had a Supreme Court ruling, they'll just come back for more like we're seeing on immigration. So, I mean, how do we get in a room with – well, let me phrase the question differently. Have you had these conversations with – 5, 10, 15 or so of your incoming colleagues, either freshmen or you know veterans in Congress, of this is not just about, oh, we got to stop Pelosi. we got to stop this legislation. we got to win back the House in 2020. This is a long-term 
visionless party that we really need a solution to? You know, I've had a few conversations. Obviously, we've only had about a week and a half to, you know, start having them. Um, I can tell you that the conversations aren't having an, aren't happening in a formal way. Uh, I'll leave it at that. But I'll say that there, there are some side conversations uh, with a couple of folks you would expect, and maybe a few you don't, uh, about what needs to occur and how much needs to change. Uh, but honestly, I think you know. We, 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 the conservative movement, to the extent there is a movement, those of us who get it, need to make the case very clearly and crystally on each of these issues. And we can't do it in a way that, that allows us to fall into the trap of fighting the fights that are going to be coming at us at the Democrat set, right, where we're playing whack-a-mole on impeachment proceedings, whack-a-mole on <clears throat> gun control, whack-a-mole on uh, some vote on pre-existing conditions. We've got to reset the narrative. And I really, truly believe this. And you were getting on it before, and I'm sorry for bouncing around a bit because you were going down the road, a very smart road, about field hearings or other things we can do as a group to highlight the issues that matter. You're talking about those sheriffs, and I believe you said Arizona. Um, I've spent a significant amount of time with the Border Patrol agents on the border in Texas, the Laredo sector and otherwise. And these are the guys and gals who understand what's happening. They see it. And by the way, the vast majority of the people I'm talking to are Mexican or Mexican descent. It is not a race-related matter. It is a sovereignty issue. It is a rule of law issue. It is a common-sense border security issue. It's not wanting the cartels to control the border. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, just, just to, Chip, just to interject for a second, I don't know what percentage is, but you know, it's it's got to be in the 30s, 40s. It's very, very high percentage of our border agents and similar law enforcement dealing with it there are of some Hispanic origin or descent. So, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And, and they live in their communities, and they and 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 the whole area is just frustrated that you've got these cartels you have operational control of our border when we're supposedly the most powerful nation the world has ever known. And yet everybody hides behind this. And, and as you know, I talk about this a lot. It's anti-immigrant. It's, it's anti-immigrant to have open border policies. It harms them. Immigrants die trying to come across our, our desert areas. Children die uh, on the top of train cars. Children get sold into the sex trafficking trade. I don't know why we as conservatives, in addition to talking about sovereignty, aren't talking about how at this instant, at 1055 in the morning in Texas, right now somewhere, a little girl is getting put into the sex trafficking trade and will be abused throughout her life because we refuse to do our daggum job and secure the border. And that's what on, that's on our hands. While all of these flippant elitists, White liberals in Washington and the Northeast, Republican and Democrat, run around talking about patting themselves on the back for all their cheap labor and their Wall Street <laughs> Journal Chamber of Commerce nonsense. I'm sick of it. Go spend an hour down on the border. Go look at these human beings that we're talking about. All we're talking about is enforcing the rule of law, securing the border, having physical barriers, cleaning up the river, removing cane, giving the resources to our Border Patrol agents having sensible laws that recognize that we have a duty to enforce our border, not hide behind uh, the rhetoric that you get 
on the Wall Street Journal uh, and, and Chamber of Commerce editorial type pages. And I'm, I'm just absolutely sickened by it. And, Don't and, even get me yeah. started on health care. <laughs> <laughs> I, I know we're, we're just going to blow up together. We can go one one after another in judicial supremacy. But th- that's, that's kind of my point because a lot of people are saying, you know, it's a real – hopeless you know a senator kind of has their own platform but if you're in the house if you're in the minority there's nothing you can do and what i'm trying to say is everything they're doing and this is when republicans are in the majority when democrats are majority the committee work 90 percent of it is is just garbage it's a distraction it doesn't focus on the main things and what's to stop you guys just from the prominence of your elected capacity but really more in in an informal capacity as citizens having you know that's the beauty of social media nowadays, technology, having field hearings with, with these people, go at, go around the system, go out, because I'm, I'm finding every day I'm learning more about the border that I, that I didn't know. So last night, I was speaking with the sheriff. He's the head of the Southwestern Border Sheriff's Coalition in Yuma, and he, um, he was saying, so Yuma, they have a double, triple-layer fence. Now, I've said before, I did a whole show on this, fences work phenomenally like we see in Israel, like we saw in Yuma, if it's an interdiction issue, that you respect your own border and you're going to catch them and they don't want to be caught because you're going get, to get, you know, deport them. So therefore, you know, it slows them down. You might be able to climb over it, but it takes a long time. You're going to get caught. But if your goal is to get caught because it's lawfare, because it's not an interdiction issue, it's not a resource issue. I mean, it's become a resource issue because of the lawfare. Then we're overwhelmed. But the point is, what he told me is that they're now coming over the, the Yuma fence, which stopped them for about 10 years. They're dropping kids as young as five months and they're breaking limbs. And his deputies had to take them, you know, take them to the hospital. Um, that is what this lawfare is causing, and this is the stuff that doesn't get out there. Or to jump to another issue, um, I have – you know, look, I read about everything. Sometimes maybe I should narrow my focus, but I, you, know, you get to see what um, people react to. I have never gotten as much strong reaction by a mile – as when I write on the opioid crisis and the people needlessly, the, the regular pain patients who are properly prescribed and properly taken and don't have behavioral or mental illness or any other problems, their, um, their overdose rate is, has always been remarkably low, even when we were possibly overprescribing, um, and certainly not now. And how veterans are being cut off because of – I didn't know the provision and one of the VA acts from the summer um, really discourages the VA from dealing with doctors that are blacklisted from prescribing. Um, veterans have reached out to me. They're, this is not even a right or left issue, and we, we don't hear about this. And, and they continue their wrongheaded policies. There's got to be a way you can marshal this in the minority. There is, <clears throat> but what it, what it requires, I believe, is – you, me, others, uh, on the inside and out, getting very specific about what we demand, very specific about what needs to change, very specific about what the problems are. And you write a lot about it. We've got some other friends out there that write about different aspects of this. We've got to get together, all of us, and focus on each one of these pieces, not 50 fights, but three or four or five that are the fundamental issues of our day. Like I was saying before, we need to balance the budget, period. We need to have secure borders as the basic duty of a sovereign nation. We need to have health care freedom because it is our right. That is the right question, by the way, your right to health care freedom. 
uh, and to have costs go down as a result. And, you know, we need to make sure that we have a military that is being used appropriately for the core responsibility of defending the nation rather than continuing to just be used around the world without specific knowledge of what they're doing. Mueller asked to spend a lot more money to do it and, oh, by the way, rack up mountains of debt in the process. If you, if you want to know what the, tr- the tr- truth is, those issues, plus an out-of-control judiciary that touches on each of those things mm. and others, are what the American people are frustrated about. People wonder what happened to the Republican Party. And they all went around saying, oh, well, we lost in the fall because we didn't talk enough about the strong economy. <laughs> That's not true. It's just simply not true. The fact of the matter is the American people are a lot smarter than they're given credit for. The American people, the suburban soccer moms who are frustrated, might have been frustrated somewhat because the president's rhetoric isn't always the best rhetoric. I don't mind acknowledging that. It's true. I don't like the way he, he communicates sometimes. But what was really going on also was a frustration that saving $1,000 a year on taxes might be great if it's even true. But it doesn't do anything when you're now spending $500 a month more in health care. So you're spending $6,000 a year more in health care. You get a $1,000 tax break. You're like, well, that's great. But I need my health care costs to go down. And when Democrats are selling Medicare for all and that everybody's going to get free health care, people start throwing their hands up when all Republicans offer is Obamacare light or some scaled down, watered down version of what the Democrats are selling. When we talk about, you know, uh, the things that people care about in terms of security, and you talk about this a lot, I think people do have some concerns about security because of gangs, because of the you know fentanyl and other uh, aspects of the drug trade, because of open borders. <clears throat> These are things that affect people's lives. And when Republicans are running away from security, running away from lower health care costs and health care freedom, running away from their job to balance the budget so we can have a strong economy going forward, the American people respond. They don't see leadership. They go the other way. So that's our job. I, again, I started to talk about being optimistic. Our job is to focus on these things. We know what the American people care about. We don't need some multi-thousand-dollar you know, thousand dollar poll that somebody goes into the Republican conference in D.C. and says, well, so-and-so says this, and we ran this regression analysis, and we did this, and we did this, so we need to do this in order to get back in power. Because that's what they're doing, right? They're polling messages to figure out how to get back in power. That is their sole focus. And that is the wrong focus. The right focus is to stand up and lead for freedom, to help people. When I say help people, I mean genuinely help the hurting people in this country, up and down the economic spectrum, that are not going to be helped by bigger government, that aren't going to be helped by another government program, but are going to be helped by freedom and opportunity and job creation, but also lower cost health care and making sure that we've got secure borders and a secure environment where the cartels don't control things. That's how you win. Get people enthusiastic about what you actually believe. You know, well, we, as this show has advanced throughout the years, we've come across pretty much those five issues that you enumerated. Everything else ties back into one or several of those everything ultimately ties back into it's amazing how it all comes full full circle um just the opioid crisis merges the border issue the criminal justice issue and healthcare. 
And everything the government does is 180 degrees backwards. So we don't have time to go through all of them. I want to I focus on, on two for the remainder of the time, um, the health care and judicial supremacy. Uh, because, again, th- these are really the civilization Jenga points, the, the civilization force multipliers, one for the economy, one for our, our system of law, our system of governance, um, who gets to de- determine our, our self-governance. But with health care... Here's what I'm struggling with, um, and I'm curious what plans you have to reset the baseline on this. Because what the left has succeeded over the years is a divide-and-conquer strategy on healthcare. So what they did is really since the advent of modern medicine, we never enjoyed both the modern technology and free market at the same time. We have never had that. Uh, we had free markets back in the day where we, you know, healthcare was just very different than it is today. Um, but starting in the 50s, 60s, um, with the tax exclusion for employers, which really, A, made insurance a monopoly over health care, and B, made employer-based a, mon- a monopoly over insurance. So really in one shot killed healthcare, then all the government programs that were added, and then the venture socialism, having the HMOs and the healthcare administrators run those programs while simultaneously running the so-called private programs, which, by the way, is backed by $270 billion in tax subsidies. So what they basically did is divide and conquer. They would get their socialist hook into the system. It would make things horrible. Endless death spiral of price inflation, a terrible clunky delivery. It's all based on referrals and cards and this, and it's not like anything else that people are used to shopping for. And then they blame the vices of the status quo on the free market as always a rationale to get to the next hook. And then, ironically, because Republicans were so incompetent, they're doing it now. It's as if Obamacare was never passed. It's like, what the heck? This is terrible. We need Medicare for all. When, meanwhile, we have Medicaid for all pretty much now. Um, how do we break that cycle where they're using their policies to leverage their next policies? Well, I think there's a lot wrapped up in what you just said. And I think that, um, you know, I, I'm going to sound repetitive, and I'm sorry for, for, for hedging a little bit. But I do believe the answer is just to get back to basics. You have to speak with, with moral authority and clarity about what we're talking about. Either the government or, this is important, insurance bureaucrats, let's take health care as an example, either the government or insurance bureaucrats are going to decide your health care or you and your doctor are. Those are your choices. I side with me and my doctor. Let the other guys side with insurance bureaucrats or government bureaucrats or judges <laughs> telling you what your health care might look like. You know, I, I believe that that produces lower cost. I believe that that means more people get access to better health care. And we have got to speak with confidence and moral authority on that and not run away when people say, well, but then people, what happens if they have a pre-existing condition? And what happens if they don't have insurance? Insurance is not health care. And as long as Republicans are letting Democrats define health care as insurance coverage, then insurance bureaucrats subsidized by debt, by your tax dollars and debt, will be de- deciding what your health care is by looking at a schedule on a piece of paper 
some 24-year-old college dropout in Nebraska on the other end of some phone line that you call, when you call Aetna or Blue Cross or somebody, is going to be looking at some schedule set by some bureaucrat who's making a lot of money in their 401k and are going to be telling you what your insurance is and telling you what health care you're allowed to have and then how much more you're going to have to spend on top of the $1,800 you're foolishly spending in health care insurance because it's no longer insurance but a government-subsidized racket. The question is, is how long will the American people tolerate that? And the Republican Party is useless in fighting that fight right now. So we have to stand up in the breach. We have to stand up and define the fight and say, we're going to fight on our terms. Under no circumstances in the United States of America is it appropriate for the full force of the United States government to be brought down on willing buyers and willing sellers in an open market to be able to get the health care of their choosing and the health insurance of their choosing. In no world is that an acceptable use of the federal government's authority. We are going to live free. We're going to allow willing buyers and willing sellers to create the market and be able to afford and access health care. And whatever social safety nets we as a society want to create at the state, federal, or local level, we can discuss. But they will be discussed under our constitutional norms. They will not be discussed by government fiat because people are allowing the left to define the narrative based on insurance coverage rather than health care freedom. That's how you fight. Exactly. And that's the thing. The so-called safety net is funneled through the very people that are given the monopoly to perpetuate not just the safety net for people that can't pay, but for those that want to pay their own way. Um, It then gives them a monopoly to screw us with the price inflation. And that's why I think, you know, we all believe in the appropriate constitutional um, structure of a safety net. But the best way of a safety net is giving it to the people, you know, not destroying the market and uh, empowering a cartel. And again, I think these are the arguments that are not given, and that's what we have to reset the baseline with. I could talk to you about health care forever, and we, we got to have a show just on that. But um, I don't want to keep you too, too much longer. Just one more thing. Uh, going back to what we started the show with, judicial supremacy. Nothing matters until this is dealt with. I mean, we are seeing that every day. There is a right to um, all sorts of voting anomalies. There is a right for 7.2 billion people to immigrate. There is a right to a press badge. Um, Until and unless we deal with this issue, that under the current system that is erroneous, it violates the essence of the social contract, that – the people through their elected representatives have to decide any overt political or cultural question um, governing the lives of the broad populace, not some some you know in, in individual adjudication where, hey, my neighbor damaged my car. I take him to court to adjudicate under the law what to do. This notion that they not only have maybe some angle in a limited sense, but the sole and finer, final expositors of the Constitution, and then it would be bad enough if we all agreed – on fundamental rights, but these very people actually bastardize fundamental rights. Up is down, down is up, what's in is out, what's out is in. Um, so no, no, nothing matters. Um, I, I've been screaming about this for years. I wrote a book on it. Um, I am not seeing any progress. I am basically seeing that you said you're 1 435th of one third of government. So the funny thing is, if one you. Half, one- 
135th of one half of one third. Which, by the way, is very important because people forget about the bicameralism within the legislature. That yep. was a big part. You know, a lot of people who think judicial supremacism is like, oh, that stops democracy. That's Republican. No, no. Republicanism was the bicameralism, among many other things that the yep. president's veto, obviously. Yep. Um, but I guess what's bothering me here is, you know, if you – you know, look, politically, I wish you could do that. Chip Roy is a member of Congress, going to become a member of Congress. Um, or a counterpart on your left, uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Um, let's pick an example from the left. You, you have no power to unilaterally do squat. And in fact, even a majority of both houses and the president, um, we are told, let's say you know, Congress passes something, 435 members. Uh, 100 senators and the president's veto, and it stands for 200 years. 200 years later, any one district judge that is picked insidiously by a political group has that, that one judge has the instantaneous and unilateral authority to do what everyone put together could never do on any issue, any time, in any way. Unless and until it's overturned by a subsequent tribunal, which in, in case that will be the final uh, destination, until the next adjudication where the same district judge could start to cycle over and do the same thing. This is like – I'm running out of adjectives to describe it other than um, judicial North Korea. Um, I, I, is there any anything you feel you could do in Congress to maybe show Democrats that – this is not a political issue, and it's it's going to be bad for all sides. I don't know the answer to that question. I'd like to think so. I you know, obviously look forward to getting to know more colleagues. And, 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 and I will say a little side note on this. It's important. To the extent that I think there's a chance for bipartisanship, which is, is always difficult you know, these days, it's that everybody has been getting things wrong so badly for so long on both sides of the aisle that it gives me at least a little hope of finding ways on a on a nonpartisan basis to try to fight for the things we believe in, right? Like you and I have talked about, uniting the country again through federalism. If you're a liberal in California and you don't like Donald Trump and you don't like, you know, some of the things his administration is doing or whatever, great. Let's protect your ability in California to be insulated from it, just as we should protect the ability of Texans or, uh, you know, Floridians or somebody else to be insulated from a, a Obama administration, right? We, we shouldn't care so much about what's happening in Washington. We should live free. I do believe there are ways on a part, nonpartisan or, you know, on maybe a bipartisan basis to find ways to come together on that front. And I'm not just saying that as some rhetoric. You know how I think about that, what I mean by that. To that end, we have got to do a better job, in my view, you, me, all of us, in finding the examples of judicial uh, you you say judicial supremacy, you know, this is different than activism, right? You're talking about a different issue than judges making up the law at the Supreme Court level, but rather district court judges, sometimes circuit court judges, occasionally the big court, just by edict the, determining something. And then the, the other political branches just say, well, I guess that's it. <laughs> They've decided and they walk away. And I think we've got to draw a, a larger audience across party lines that this isn't about Donald Trump. This isn't about his administration. This isn't about, you know, one issue or another. <clears throat> it's about whether or not a judge in his or her sole discretion <clears throat> can basically decide for us 
our way of life, our policies, yes. the, the things that matter, under some screwy, uh, you know, bastardized interpretation of the law, the Constitution, applicable apl- application of precedent, etc., as opposed to what the core function of the judiciary was to do, which was to adjudicate very limited questions uh, that would be, you know, true. Uh, areas that you you, you got to decide what a certain phrase means when the application of the law, you know, disputes and contract disputes and disputes between states. But in, rather than what we've done, which is allowed the judiciary to become a a super legislative function, and 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 it's not again, it goes beyond activism. It goes beyond. Oh well, the court just got together and made up the law. It, it goes to judges have been given this sort of super power elevated above the other branches. Wow, folks. I mean, I could have him on just all day. And I'm sure you felt the same way. I I couldn't just steal his time. I mean, he is so busy. You could only imagine what it's like to suddenly win a congressional race. And you only really have uh, about a month and a half to transition. So, um, he, you know, certainly gave plenty of time. But... I could just have him here all day. Uh, true story. A couple weeks ago, I was speaking with Congressman Thomas Massey, and I told him about Chip Roy, and he was like, all right, Daniel, what's the over-under on how many months it will take for him to sell out? You know, because he thought he was like anyone else. How long is his shelf life? And I said, no, no, you don't understand, Thomas. He's different than anyone else. Um, he has not changed one bit. You know, normally you get a little bit more PC. You change a little bit once you become a candidate. Um, then certainly when you win a primary, and then certainly once you get into the general, and then certainly once you become a congressman-elect, if anything, he's gotten more passionate about what he believes in, and I am really excited about him getting elected. Again, I think he's crazy for sacrificing himself. I wouldn't want to do it, but heck, now that it's not my skin and he did it, I'm certainly very happy to have someone on the inside that thinks exactly the way we do and is fully committed in the most selfless way you hear it in his voice it's not this desire to even own the libs and score conservative political points um win for a party even win for a movement Uh, he has better things to do with his life he's a cancer survivor was a prosecutor could be making a lot of money in private law um, private practice and law um really this was very tough for them just uh, financially uh he doesn't have a lot of money uh, he's one of those guys that really, you know, he doesn't have it made and it actually makes a difference when you uproot yourself and, you know, what he's going to do with his family. He really doesn't need this. He really genuinely cares about the future of this country. And there are very few people that are that altruistic. So we salute him. And, and wow, there's a lot to think about. And again, send me your questions, comments. Let me know. Um, hope you all enjoy Faith family and country over the weekend that is really the theme of thanksgiving the theme that really from the first thanksgiving actually even before uh george washington um in 1789 it was actually the continental congress a couple years earlier had the first thanksgiving it was in the fall it um originally it was passed in late september the beginning of the fall because it coincided with Pentecost, the Jewish holiday, um, not Pentecost, Tabernacle, the Jewish holiday of um, celebrating the fall harvest. 
and later on it was kind of moving backed up in the fall more towards november and that, that's really when they ultimately celebrated it in 1789 but it was set upon the premise that we cannot have blessings without beseeching god recognizing those blessings and we are not worthy of more blessings unless we recognize it and thank god for those blessings and we really have to thank him for everything you know you lo- you look at everything else in the world this still is the best place to live. We still have a fighting chance to at least be able to fight and talk about this openly in a country like this. I'm thankful for the microphone I have. Most importantly, I'm thankful for you guys giving me the time of day, willing to hear me out. Um, I'd be a nothing without you. You know, They wouldn't care what I have to say in the political class and wouldn't be scared about the truth bombs I'm putting out if, if no one sees it. Um, you know, just some random guy sitting in front of a microphone, sitting in front of in front of a keyboard, with no um, legal or political pedigree, no no connections or anything. Uh, I'm literally like like all of you, and I'm truly thankful for that. And again, we are all thankful for Chip Roy and his sacrifice and everything he's done, and look forward to working with him. Have a blessed Thanksgiving. Enjoy the rest of your week. We'll be back next Monday. In full form, God bless you all. This has been another episode of The Conservative Conscience.